Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Monday, September 14th. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. My name is Tom Power. Today on the show, uh, man, I maybe I needed the show a little bit today. Like, it's a pretty emotional show. I just want to get you ready for that. Um, first off, Anthony Hopkins, who is, of course, one of the greatest actors of all time, not just of our time. And he... Uh, is here to talk about this movie he has called The Father, where he plays a man suffering with, you know, it's never quite stated, but like senility, dementia, Alzheimer's. And the film is shot in a way that like he's in one house in one scene and it's the same house, but it's a different house the next scene and different actors are playing the same role so as to make us understand what it's like to actually have senility, Alzheimer's, dementia. And he plays an actor named Anthony who is the same age as him with the same birthday, and if you think that that gives Anthony Hopkins perspective on life, you are right. So the conversation is about the film, and then it becomes about the roller coaster that is life. It becomes about free will. It becomes about God. It becomes about the fear of getting old. And um, man, I, I feel like I'm forever changed by that one a little bit. And I, I hope you dig it too. And then after that, Toots Hibbert from Toots and the Maytals, you know, the one of the greatest reggae singers in the entire world. It's like, you know, Jimmy Cliff, Bob Marley, Toots, May, Toots Hibbert, right? Jay Douglas, who is one of the greatest Canadian reggae performers of all time, he comes on to start talking about Toots Hibbert. But what, of course, do we end up talking about? The soul and the spirit and, and love and the physical form going away and... Ah, so Jay Douglas will, will move you there to eulogizing his friend and his hero. And then finally, Tracy Deer, who made – I'm not even going to say that much about it because I, I want you to hear it and I want, I want you to hear Tracy's story. I don't want to tell the story. But essentially, Tracy Deer, um, when she was a kid, she lived through what we call the Oka crisis. And she knew when she was 12 years old that she was going to make a film about it. And now she's finally made that film. And she talks about having to relive some of the most harrowing, the worst day of her life, she says. She had to relive the worst day of her life in order to make this film. Um, I hope you can listen to the whole show today. Go for a walk or something like that. All right, show starts now. Welcome to the show. It is Monday. From the remains of the day to silence of the lambs, Sir Anthony Hopkins become one of the greatest actors working today. He's in his 80s now, and he's still stepping into very complex, really interesting roles like King Lear and Westworld. And I don't know if you saw The Two Popes on Netflix, but but his latest film might be the one to eclipse all of them. And I mean that. It's called The Father. And Anthony Hopkins plays a man suffering from dementia. And he's locked in this struggle for control with his daughter, who's played by Olivia Coleman, And he's negotiating his way through a reality that's constantly shifting and changing around him. And in one scene, the, the daughter is played by one actor and the next scene is played by the other. And you, you understand that this man's reality is changing all the time. And Anthony gives this unbelievable, nuanced, breathtaking performance. 
I stuck with me for about a week after I watched it, and maybe it's still there. You know, the father is screening at the Toronto International Film Festival this year. It's got uh, Oscar predictors all excited, but I uh, I loved every second of getting to talk to Sir Anthony Hopkins, and I hope you love it too. I reached Anthony Hopkins at his home in Los Angeles. Hello, and welcome to the program. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, congratulations on the film. It really is quite incredible. Thank you. It, it is good, isn't it? I thoroughly enjoy doing it. Just last year, it seems uh, I feel very nostalgic for that period because it was a, a most enjoyable uh, film to work on. They, I'm seeing you know, Oscar buzz. I'm seeing uh, that this is one of the best of Anthony Hopkins's career. Does it stand out to you? Does it feel something special to you? Uh, yes, it does. Uh, the last five or six years have been pretty good for me. I've been in England. I did uh, King Lear and uh, The Dresser with Ian McKellen and um, King Lear with uh, um, Emma Thompson and um, The Two Popes. And then this one, uh, they, were all, they were all very good, wonderful directors. But this one was really special because it was a different kind of script. It came out of the blue. My agent phoned me one day, he said, would you read something called The Father? So I read it and I thought, oh, it's one of those that comes up once in a, once in a while. And you think, well, this is almost like the perfect script. It was written by um, uh, Florentella and uh, the screenplay written by uh, Christopher Hampton. And uh, it was um, one of those things that really grab you condensed and contained and upsetting in its in its strange way. So I met them for breakfast and uh, over here in Los Angeles. And uh, I was already signed to do the two popes in mm. Rome. So I thought, oh, I hope I don't lose it because they wanted to go earlier, but they waited for me. So I'm, I'm so thrilled the, that they waited. Yeah, they were very intentional. Florian, uh, Florian Zeller, the playwright, said, when I was dreaming about the film, the first and only face that came to me was Anthony Hopkins. Why do you think that was? What do you think he saw in you about this role? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea, but I, I find it very hard to believe. And actually, he re renamed the part Anthony. And did, when I mentioned my date of birth, that is my date of birth. I don't know why. That was a trick, I guess. But it was, um, I have no idea. I'm very pleased that he did want me to do it. Um, no, it was, it was quite, quite, quite extraordinary. Quite an extraordinary part to play. Even though, I mean, the character in the original was was Andre, it was changed to Anthony, and uh, and and like you said, it has it has your day of birth. Um, you are the same age as this person who's losing his grip on what's real and not real, struggling with senility, struggling with dementia and Alzheimer's. Obviously, it's not your experience. I'm I'm, I'm very curious about acting, as I've never done it. What do you draw on to inhabit someone like that? Well, I don't want to sound, sound highfalutin about acting because I'm not. It's something I've been doing for a long time now. I don't know how we do it. It's just something we can do all. Yeah. I, I, and as I'm getting older, um, I find it easier to be in touch with emotions and feelings I've never, I've locked up for a long time. You know, being from Britain and male and all that, you don't show emotions and all that stuff. But it's interesting because recently, just before we did the the, the film, um, we had a forum of 15 to 20 young 
people here in Los Angeles and they were actors and uh, uh, musicians and and it's called the artist forum and I, I, would, I did it for free and I'd go in and they'd ask me questions and the more they asked me I would ask them practical questions like how hard is it for you to find work in this business and they all put their hands up I said yes it is that's the toughness of the game I said but you just keep on plugging away at it and I found the whole idea of talking to these younger people, they're all younger than me, everyone was younger than me. I found it very emotionally uplifting and, and uh, reveals a lot about myself. So when I was doing this film, I was ready and uh, raw. Uh, and I'm not a, a method actor. I mean, I don't sit in the corner. <laughs> worrying about it. I, I don't like going have a cup of tea, have a cup of coffee, have a sit yes. in the morning. Reaction. <laughs> it's that simple. You, you know, it, it, uh, it's no big sweat. Some some people want to make a big deal of it. I can't. I've, I've got a life of my own. And acting to me is a is a hobby, a paid hobby. But I, I enjoy it. I don't know why I do it. I don't know to this day why I'm an actor. I mean, it's all a big surprise to me after 60-odd years I've been doing this now. So it's... Uh, even longer in fact. I, I love that contrast you were talking about there about you know when you're a man especially of a certain generation you know and I'm 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 from the east coast of Canada I'm from Newfoundland where it was very similar you know that and I heard you talk about this in an interview one time and it stuck with me that you went to a funeral one time and there was there was mourning being done by the women in the room and the men were drinking they were just getting as hammered as they possibly could and I've always loved that idea of that there are these you know very intense uh, stoic men who are unable to show any emotion yet I can see them on stage or I can see them in a film and they all of a sudden are able to get that out as some sort of maybe yeah. reaction to that, if you know what I mean. Cultural thing, isn't it? Well, I, 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 I don't know if there's such a thing as permanent personality. I doubt that we can change it through the... But I, I suppose um, from the very beginnings of time, we were wired, the male was wired to kill and destroy and start problems today. And so you couldn't be uh, weeping when you were killing your food, you know, buffalo. Bowl. You just didn't have the time to do that. Uh, I mean, that's a stupid analogy. But <laughs> I think it's in there. So you have to show coffee. But um, I still get slightly embarrassed when I see men crying, and yet I, I, I cry easily myself. And it's very odd because as I've got to this age now, I'm 82, I'm going to be 83 at the end of this year, there's one poem that haunts me, which is T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of Alfred Prufrock. And he says at the end, I grow old, I grow old. I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Do I? And that, when I say that, I get tearful because it's not even a melancholy or a depression. It's the fact that I've had an extraordinary life and I'm pulling all the strings and the fabrics of my life together now. And the past is very present to me. My own parents, my father, who worked hard all his life, and my mother and my grandparents. So I'm pulling all those threads into me. And I can't even describe it, but I'm... It's a locality in my head that I'm back in Wales and it has a tremendously powerful effect on me because I realise that, you know, um, I'm up there now and yeah. uh, uh, and I'm not scared, I'm not afraid. And I just You're not, because it's no. very scary... It's a very scary film in some ways. Like, I found it very scary. In fact, I read one review that said it is the scariest non... It's scarier than any horror films that was going to be at Sundance. And, you know, I should say for people like who are... I don't want to give it too much away, but, you know, it's about a man who's, who's dealing with senility and he's living with his, his family. And, and, you know, you're not entirely sure what he experiences is real. And the saddest moments are when... He doesn't even bother to argue with them about what he thinks is real and what is not real. He says, okay, well, you know, whatever. We'll just, we'll just sort of move on with our lives. It, it terrified me about getting older, Anthony, to be honest. I find it remarkable that you say you're not, very, you're not scared of it. Well, what's the point? Because it's inevitable. We're not 
no, you know, life is terminal. It's a terminal condition, and we're not going to get off the planet alive. And with that reality, there's a tremendous freedom. You're much younger than me, much younger. But I've reached the stage. I don't know if I, yeah, anxiety. Yeah, a little bit of that. But no, I'm not because there's nothing I can do about it. Moving finger rights and having Rick moves on. All that party know it can. They're back. Oh, whatever it was, Omar Khayyam, isn't it? Come fill the cup before we too into the dust descend, dust under dust and under dust. There's a wonderful peacefulness about it. And I remember when my mother was dying, she just had had enough. She was 89 and she just wanted to go. And I mean, it's a sad subject to talk about, but that's the inevitable part. That's what makes Carl Jung said that once we reach a certain age in our lives and we get into the middle life of the 40s and 50s, we look at the horizon and we see at the horizon because we all go around, you know, hey, life is fun, oh, the red carpet and all that. <laughs> None that you see on the horizon, death. Mm. And there's no way, and we think, okay, well, he's there, hello. And it's a message, just enjoy it, just enjoy it. As, as War and Peace, in uh, War and Peace, uh, Pierre Bezuhov, he's on the retreat from Moscow and um, captured by the French and Napoleon's armies. And he meets this old peasant, Platon Karataev. And Platon Karataev is an old, old peasant. And he's dying of frostbite. And they shoot him in the end. But he says to Pierre, he said, just live life today, that's all. Just live it today. As Bob Dylan said, uh, the flowers of the city, though breath-like, get death-like at times, but there's no use in trying to deal with the dying, though I cannot explain that in lines. Yeah, he was well, a great philosopher, Bob Dylan, a great one, isn't he? The the idea that we can't we can't quite um, we can't quite explain that we can't quite make art about it. But this is perhaps the closest I felt. And you and I talked about this right before we turned the microphones on. That it gave me a great empathy. I mean, of course, when you watch this film, it can be hard to watch because it reminds you of people you've had in your life who have experienced senility and dementia and, and Alzheimer's. And I've I it made me question empathy. Not whether I should have empathy, but the empathy perhaps I didn't have. Because I think when you're able to use this film to see reality through someone with senility or, or dementia or, or Alzheimer's, you begin to really have a deeper empathy for them, perhaps one that was missing before. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Um, um, I just happened to pick up on something the other day, two days ago, about you know this present situation with the pandemic and uh, the... Uh, increase of massive depression throughout the world and uh, young people especially young well and any age but young people who've had their dreams dashed and uh, it's a morbid subject and I just uh, found out about the suicide rate and uh, somebody I knew recently committed suicide and I, I, I and it gave me a sense of god almighty how lucky I am. I mean, yeah, I've had my moments of depression or melancholy, whatever you want, sadness, but my life hasn't been rough in any way. I'm very fortunate. But I look at the God Almighty, that's that's compassion, that's love, that's something so powerful because you think, I know nothing really. And the people just, I don't know what the statistics are, but every few minutes somebody's dying mm. because they can't face the, the pain of life. And uh, But life is painful. And when I did that forum uh, last year before we did The Father, I'd say to these young kids, I said, you know, life is painful. It's not all, you know, passion and, the, you know, get man and be first on top of it. There's no way we can guarantee that. And that brought the emotions up to me. I thought we are 
pretty powerless. You, you, you say when you go onto the set, you're not method or anything. You can have a cup of tea, have a cup of coffee. Hi, how are you? And then do your work. But, but after your work, after you inhabit someone like this, after you're crying and after you're dealing with experiencing all this and going through it with your mind, do they stay with you afterwards? No, no, not in my mind. I, I go back tired at the end of the day. But they bought it. So I, I say I'm not a method actor. Well, I'm not, you know, I, I know my way through Stanislavski and all that stuff. I yeah. know about the method. I'm not condemning that. That's fine. Sure. Um, but I can't sit in the corner thinking I'm a planter or anything like that. <laughs> but um, I did. But I, so by, I suppose in, because you know, every day I'd have to go in and put on clothes of this bedraggled old man and then, and act out, you know, and my brain then would, I'd say to my brain, I'm just playing, I'm only play acting, this is not for real, because our brain believes anything we tell it. Mm. Um, but the only, the funny side effects were that I found my body beginning to break down, and it took me several weeks to begin to walk properly, because it affected my body, and I'm not, as I say, I'm not a man, I wasn't crippled, but I, my back ached and I felt tired, because it did have an effect on me, but at, at an unconscious level. So I had to wake up and think, okay, stop it, stop it. Come on, come on, let's get back to normal. Um, and I think it's a healthier, well, that's my choice of a healthier method of working because I, I can't, you know, swallow and digest all that intensity and become um, that, you know, somebody asked me about playing a lector, you know, are you, I'm nothing like that man at all. But you know, uh, Good, good. That would, that would be horrible <laughs> if you were. I'd be terrified right now. But you, you just be able to, the parts of, I suppose, my skill, I was an actor, if you want to call it that, for whatever it is, um, I was blessed or cursed with an analytical side of my nature, which sort of understands personality. I, I study people from a very early age, and I, I, I take in people's habits and their movements and their shadow moves, and I can glean from them, and I can use that. And um, and uh, is, that, is that different than... than- caring not to say that you don't care but oftentimes you hear when you want to have empathy when you want to feel something for somebody you're able to put yourself in in their shoes you know what i mean oh yeah that's easy to do you, you i can do that yes because we never know what what pain people are in we never know um the people suffer terrible loneliness and uh um i uh my wife and i we we uh drawn to them. We see it, we spot it in people. We try the best we can, you know, to, to help and uh, gather people around. Uh, because loneliness is the big illness, malady, uh, isolation and loneliness. And this pandemic we're going through now is uh, a hallmark of isolation. And uh, God help anyone. So, you know, I try to cheer people up and uh, uh, say, smile, it may never happen. Uh, let's try try to be as cheerful as we can. I, I wanted to ask you about this. I, I was reading in an interview that you uh, were diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, and it happened uh-huh. late, later in life. How does that affect you as an actor? Well, I don't... Do you know? I, it doesn't affect me. I'm obsessive. I mean, I, 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 uh, it's, a, it's a great gift, actually, because I... Um, I, I was a bit slow as a, as a school kid, and so I made up for it by uh, working hard, and I became, you know, a successful actor. Uh, obsessiveness about the details, and I, I will work and work and work on the script, and I learn every single line, not at everyone's part, but I learn that. And uh, but I'm not quirky. I, I think I'm a bit. I actually I, I'm 
I'm an absent-minded professor. I forget things and I get obsessed with stupid details. My father was like that. Uh, my father, when everyone arrived at the house, and there was a kid, my father said, what road did you take? Huh? He said, well, we came from the closet. Oh, did you go through chapter? Yeah. And my mother said, why are you asking all these questions? <laughs> No, I asked me. I asked, so which route are you coming? Are you coming in through Culver's? Oh, my wife says, why do you need to know? I said, I don't know. And I have this extraordinary thing about dates. I can remember dates and um, through the years, uh, dates and days of um, for many, many years. I wonder, and, uh, I wonder what that's but, like to have like to have a key to your psyche late in life, to have lived your life. I'm I'm Sir Anthony Hopkins. I am I am me, and then to one day find out, oh, I also am this. I also am part of this. I, you know, well, it's a surprise. I, I mean, I, I recently, um, uh, my wife is making a documentary film about me, and uh, uh, recently we were in Wales doing. I was in, playing the father in England, you know, in London, and uh, we went to Wales, and my wife interviewed a school teacher, and he's ninety five years of age now, and he's uh, I was his. Uh, and he said of me, he said, well, Anthony, he said, you know, he didn't have a clue. And so within 10 years of leaving school, he was understudying Lawrence Olivier at the National Theatre. He said, so, no, and I, and I thought, and when she said that, I said, what? And it got me thinking, I thought, my God, this is the extraordinary thing. And for me, it's the most meaningful thing of my life now is that I have no idea how any of this happened. Mm. Well, I left school in 1955. Went to the army, did my national service or military service, and I came out and went to two years in the Royal Academy and all that. So in a period of a few years, I'd gone from here to there. It's impossible, and I can't take credit for any of that. I cannot take credit for any of that. I remember seeing Peter O'Toole in uh, Bristol Ovic playing Jimmy Porter, 1937, at the Bristol Ovic. I thought, what an actor. And I'd forgotten this. Ten years later, I was playing his son in the film called Lion in Winter. And I'd forgotten all that. I'd forgotten the details of the time and the decades. And the. And I look at my life, I thought, this is quite extraordinary. And I really believe this. And I'm not talking religion. Or, I'm talking about something else that is running our lives. I don't believe I'm in charge of my My life is none of my business. I got on some vast vehicle of some kind, uh, it's like some great, slow-moving, cumbersome elephant that goes through life. And I'm on its back, the gentle elephant. And I'm, and I'm riding through this landscape, and my life is... I'm sitting here now, talking to you in Canada. I think, how on earth did any of this happen? And it, the only information I can glean for myself is a feeling that life is a dream. It's all an illusion. And I, now people would say that's nuts. I'm not in the solipsistic way, but I do believe that this is a dream, all of it. It feels like it. I mean, my whole life has felt like that. When you, when you were filming the two popes, when you were Pope Benedict, when you were filming, you know, you were in the Sistine Chapel, you were surrounded by, you know, the, the, the beauty and the pomp and, pomp and circumstance and the uh, excess of, of the Vatican, and you were surrounding yourself in all these big questions. Did that give you any greater perspective on all of this? It did. It was interesting looking at those paintings. It's quite extraordinary. It's a bit of a revelation because um, it's extraordinary. From from here down is the carnal. And you look at all those paintings, everything up here is enlightenment. It's very odd because years before, many years ago, I was in Rome doing another film. 
Titus, and uh, I met a priest in a, in a restaurant near, near the, uh, the steps, you know. And uh, he sort of, he said, oh, you're the actor, and he was Austrian. And he got out of uh, Germany before the war started. And um, But he said, so are you enjoying Rome? I said, yes, yes. And uh, so I, I, I said, yes, well, he said, I'm at the Vatican. I said, oh, you are, yeah. So he asked me about myself. My, did I have any faith? I said, well, yes, I do. But I have doubts. He said, same as you. I said, I always had doubts. He said, and I always had doubts. He said, but he said, one day I was in this cafe full of the dark night of the soul. He said, and I looked around and I saw all the young people, young girls and their boyfriends. And he said, I suddenly realized that is it. It's life itself. And he said something remarkable to me. He said, one day you'll be back in Rome and you'll have a big surprise in your life. I said, what's that? He said, I don't know, but something's going to happen to you. It's your really... You remember my conversation. He was an old man then. That was 1998. And all those years later, I'm playing the Pope. And it didn't hit me until I was actually in, you know, in the studio and in, you know, down near the steps. I thought, my God, this is weird. You so, so suddenly you you are. Life is so extraordinary because I wake up in the middle of. The dream in a way. I'm, I'm in the place and I'm thinking, I'm actually here. I believe this at some point and here it is. And I, I, I'm always in a state of surprise. So maybe that's why I'm an actor because I don't have a clue about it or <laughs> maybe that's my Asperger's thing. But I really don't. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, I don't have a clue about any of it though. I mean, I'm sitting here, I don't know how I ever got this far. This bit. You're, you're, listen, you're talking to me, buddy. I don't know how I got here either talking to you, for Christ's sake. None of us do. <laughs> <laughs> Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with, from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Tom Power. All right, you're about to hear part two of my conversation with Sir Anthony Hopkins. He's got an unbelievable new movie at the Toronto International Film Festival this year. I listen, I'm 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 not in the business of like being effusive about movies if I don't love them. Like it's really incredible. It's called The Father. Um, it's about a man um, struggling with dementia, and Anthony Hopkins is playing that man, and he's the same age as the man with the same name, and the whole thing is wild. Anthony mentioned that he'd been Sir Lawrence Olivier's understudy at the Royal National Theatre back in the 60s. Sir Lawrence Olivier talks about this in his memoir. He says that when Anthony filled in for him, he made off with the part, quote, like a cat with a mouse between its teeth. 
So I wanted to know what kind of memories Anthony has of that time and what he remembers about this legendary actor who's kind of like Mickey Mouse to us, you know, like doesn't barely exist. Um, what he remembers about Sir Lawrence Olivier. Oh, he was extraordinary. He was, uh, uh, I went on stage from the night he'd gone into hospital, St. Thomas's Hospital, for he had prostate cancer. And in those days, it was, you know, killer. They, they was having radium treatment. And I then studied them in Dance of Death, Strindberg. And I was told I was on stage and I thought they were crazy. But then I went on and, you know, I did okay. And the audience gave me a standing ovation. <laughs> I did not. I thought, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? But I did it and it was like automatic pilot. And he phoned me the next morning. And uh, he said, I saw you last night. I said, but he came out in his bathroom with his doctor and stood at the back. He said, you did well done. I said, uh, thank you. I, he said, how did you feel? I said, well, my problem is I, I went through too many shirts because of the sweat, you know, because of nerves. He said, he said, well, that's called tension. I said, how long does it take to cure? They said, about 25 years. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> the trick is, he said, you get to a point when you relax. And he said, but you did so well. He said, and the adversary is one of his, I, he gave me such encouragement, you know. And uh, I look at that part of my life as uh, quite extraordinary. Was he right? Was he right in 25 years after that? Were you? Yeah, so I relax and I don't, uh, you know, I say I don't care. Of course I care. I want to get the job done right and I do it and I do the best of my ability. But I don't take myself seriously within it I um, just let go and uh, uh, I had a very profound thought I was going to tell you and I forgot oh, please, please. Oh, oh dig for it dig for it I'm sure you'll well let me let me ask you this and maybe this will maybe this will jog it back because I was thinking that Lawrence you become the understudy for Sir Lawrence Olivia he says that about you Sir Richard Attenborough calls you the greatest actor of your generation I, I find it remarkable that that pressure would crush some people the pressure of these legends saying these wonderful things about you. I, I, I find it so incredible that you were able to handle it, you know. Well, I'll tell you a story. My, my father and mother, they came to see me in the theatre, the National Theatre, at the old Vicar Doors in those days. And I was in uh, a play called, uh, with Joan Plowright, who was Lord Olivia's, Lawrence Olivia's wife. And uh, we had these scenes together. I was her husband. And much to my astonishment, and... Uh, it was a very successful play, and apparently I was very good in it. Anyway, my mother and father there, they were a little boy from Wales, you know, and uh, they were in the dressing room, and uh, Joan Plowright came in from next door. She met my mother and my father. And then Olivia came in. My father took out cigarettes, and he started smoking. My mother went very... I said, this is Lord Olivia, as he was then. My mother said, oh, I said, hello, Mrs. Hopkins. And my father, my father, in his nervousness, he said, how old are you? <laughs> he said, I was born in 1907. He said, same age as me, go, both going down the bloody hill now, aren't we? He said, <laughs> <laughs> and, Olivia and my mother said at the end, she said, I thought it was He said, he breathes oxygen just like me, doesn't he? Yeah. Moment, he breathes oxygen. So there's nothing special about any of us. I'm just, a, you know, I'm just fortunate to be what I do. I mean, I've enjoyed it. I've had a tremendous life beyond anything I could have dreamed. What, what, what role are you most proud of? I think this one, the um, the father. Uh, the remarkable thing is about it, this is that it was Florian Zell's last, first, 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 first directorial film. Never directed the film before. Christopher Hampton, you know, did his screenplay, mm. Florian's play, and uh, this was his first film. So 
I couldn't believe it. It's quite extraordinary because he was so, such control and such, uh, yeah, humility about it all. And uh, I think this is my favorite. Well, there's Remains of the Day, King Lear I did, <laughs> big parts. Um, the Dresser with Ian McKellen, wonderful actor. Um, the Two Popes, Jonathan Price. But I think this was my favorite because it was some more meaningful to me. It was Alfred Pufrock, you know, coming to the end of his life. And, uh, yeah, I've heard the mermaids singing each reach. I do not think that they will sing to me. Sir Anthony Hopkins. Great sweetness of life, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's been lovely hearing you, you um, use so much poetry already, because I know this about you. I, I've read that you memorize difficult poems to keep your mind sharp when you don't have a script to memorize. In, in the spirit of entertaining people, I wonder if you'd indulge us, and, and could you give us a little, a little bit of a poem that means something to you? Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights, in one-night cheap hotels, and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to an overwhelming question, oh, do not ask, what is it? Let us go and make our visit. In the room, the men come and go, talking of Michelangelo. That's from Chester. I can't do it without getting cheerful, because it's about life. It's about coming to the stage of life where it's not even pain. It's not even depression. It's a kind of sweetness. It's a kind of yearning. And I think that's what it is for me. He says in the end, he says, I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker. And I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker. And in short, I was afraid. It's, uh, my guest is Sir Anthony Hopkins uh, <laughs> doing the, the love song of G. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot uh, a little bit there. Sir Anthony Hopkins, what a, what a joy it was to talk to you. And, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. I mean, what a, what a gift it is to, to get to speak with him. And what a generous guest to read that poem at the end. And I feel very privileged I feel very lucky that um, I got that opportunity. What an amazing fellow. Sir Anthony Hopkins stars in The Father, which is screening at this year's Toronto International Film Festival. A bit of news now. That's the theme of the beloved Canadian TV series uh, Schitt's Creek. Yesterday, it won big at the Dorian TV Awards. The Dorians are handed out by the Society of LGBTQ Entertainment Critics. Schitt's Creek took home five of its seven nominations, including Best TV Comedy. Catherine O'Hara, Dan Levy, and Annie Murphy also took home acting prizes. Schitt's Creek aired its final season earlier this year, but you can catch all six seasons on CBC's Gem. And now some sad news to tell you about. I'll never go That's the reggae legend Toots Hibbert with an acoustic version of one of his early hits, Never Grow Old. Toots died on Friday, but the words of that song ring true. In a way, Toots Hibbert never really grew old. He kept touring and recording until the end of his life. As the leader of Toots and the Maytals, he was one of the architects of reggae music. Some people say he even gave the genre its name with an early song called Do the Reggae. 
songs like Bam Bam and Pressure Drop and 5446 was my number, made Toots and the Maytals huge stars, earning them 31 number one singles in Jamaica over the years. Toots and the Maytals, along with Desmond Decker, Jimmy Cliff, and Bob Marley, were among the first Jamaican artists to take reggae from Jamaica to the world. Ziggy Marley tweeted that he spoke with Toots Hibbert a few weeks ago and that he told him he loved him and they laughed and they shared their mutual respect. And he tweeted, he was a father figure to me. His spirit is with us. His music fills us with his energy. I will never forget him. Trey Anastasio of the band Fish penned a long tribute. In 2003, Trey collaborated with Toots Hibbert on a new version of the Maytals' Sweet and Dandy. He wrote on Instagram, Like so many people, I loved his music my entire life. It was ubiquitous, playing at parties and gatherings. It felt like an element, like air. A spokesperson from the family says Toots Hibbert died peacefully in a hospital in Kingston, Jamaica on Friday. No official cause of death has been issued yet. But a statement from the band earlier this month said he'd entered an intensive care unit and was awaiting the results of a coronavirus test. Toots Hibbert was 77. You know, and uh, just a few weeks ago, we had an interview lined up with Toots. And he, as I mentioned, he had to cancel at the last minute because of health issues. He was supposed to be on to talk about his incredible career, about his first album in a decade called Got to Be Tough. As a songwriter, Toots captured the joy and pain of ordinary people's lives and struggles and told their stories in his rich, unbelievably soulful voice. Joining me now to celebrate the life and artistry of Toots Hibbert is a Canadian reggae pioneer, Jay Douglas, who has a deep connection to Toots and his music. Jay, Jay Douglas, uh, welcome back to Q. Good morning. I'm honored to be back. It's, it's lovely to have you. I'm so sorry, by the way. I'm so sorry for the loss there. Yes, yes. Quite of loss, a big dent in the foundation of reggae music, uh, scale rock, city reggae, not only in Jamaica, but up on the land. It's quite a big loss. What, what made Toot so special? He was very sincere, non-political, but truth, the truth in life's journey, the inspiration. But more than any other artist, you can put him up there with Rita James Brown, Mr. Soul. It came from the soul. Revival. Gospel. And in the early days, instead of the, in Jamaica, they wouldn't say revival. they say clap hand church. Because when you go to those church, you clap and you celebrate. And, and another thing, too, Jamaica got her independence in 1962. And that was around the time, 63. He came to light with the Matals, the Matals, happy time, go lucky, enjoy life. And you got to put Stranger Cole in the mix too, Monty Morris, Delroy Wilson, Desmond Decker, and the Aces. So that's what makes him so special. What went through your head, Jay, when you found out Toots had passed? Oh, man. You know, I, I got the call while I was sleeping, and it's... I had to stay quiet for a while because in life's journey, when you sow those positive seeds, it's just great harvest. I'll give you an example. Right now in Toronto, some of the fruits from Toots is right here with us. Carl Harvey, the guitar player for Toots for so many years, lives right here in Toronto. Turned out to be one of the top producers. Eddie Bullen, Thunderdome Sound, Thunderdome, Thunderdome Sounds, another producer that produced me over the years, and another gentleman, Bernie Pitters, 
who was in an institution. All three of these gentlemen toured with Toots for many years, and they are living in Toronto right now under our nose. And many of us have reaped the seeds that Toots has sown throughout the years. Mm. So even though he passed away in the physical, we will rejoice continuous with his spirit. You got to open for him. Uh, you opened for Toots and the Maytels at... <laughs> At the Who El- told you that? At the Elma Campbell. Well, I saw it on your Facebook there last night, and then our producer, Chris, told me about it, too. I know. What, what, was, he, what was he like? What was he like as a guy? Amazing. Before the show, we did sound check at the Elma Campbell in the afternoon, and just to sit there and listen to a wise man with so many inspirational topics, where he's been and how the business goes, and what I left with that afternoon is... We must always be humble, be humble, be true to the music, and respect ourselves and respect others. And we don't have to ask for respect. It comes to us. We earned it. It was going back to school, opening up for him at the Elma Combo. And at the time, he just returned back to the stage because he had surgery for it and he wasn't performing for a while. So I was doing a show, thanks to Jones & Jones production. And when I opened the show, you know, I was so excited, man. I was working. I worked that night. So somebody went down. He was sitting in the bus waiting for his turn, and they told him, hey, you you better be ready because Jay Douglas is really cooking up here. <laughs> man, he came up with fire in the eyes. He stayed on stage for two and a half hours. <laughs> no kidding. And also, I worked with him at another time, Pablo Paul and myself and others, the Cougars. We, there was a club in Bathurst Street called the Club Carabana, mm-hmm. you know, run by Roy Williams and others. And he came there, and we worked with him that night. At, you know, I, and that's the, this man has got so much soul. Soul. He sings from the soul. He's a, you know, and with the influence, again, of the American guys like Otis Red and all these cats. But Toots, Toots is right up there with them. He he grew up poor in the small town of Maypen Parish, just a few hours outside of Kingston, the youngest of seven children. Both his parents were dead by the time he was 11 years old. So let's talk about that soul. Like, how do you think that her, how do you think that background, how do you think Toots' life made him into an artist and the artist he became? Well, he was blessed because here's a man. This is interesting. Good question. In life. What good am I? What good are you if we do not know how to turn a negative into a positive? He lost his his mom when he was, uh, uh, I think, eight years of age. By the time 14, he lost his father. So he had to go. Our road leads leads to Kingston from Maypen, Clarendon. He went there. He had to find a way with the help of the spirit and end up in studios, Studio One, Treasure Isle Studio, and he started making all these hits and never grow old. Uh, it's you, six and seven book of Moses. Now this is an interesting song. Yeah, we have we have, we have that song. Take a listen to this. Please. That is Toots and the Maytals with the six and seven books of Moses from 1964. Sorry, Jay Douglas, you were saying about Toots. That's 
heavy spirituality, whether you want to accept it or not. And on top of that, he got arrested for, they caught him with ganja. Those days when you get caught with ganja or marijuana or herbs, you're in trouble. You're not supposed to have that. So he went to prison. They gave him a number, 5446. What did he do? He turned it into a positive, make it a hit song. To this day. Take a listen. That's 5446 is my number. That's the song you just mentioned, uh, you know, written after Toots was arrested in jail for possession of marijuana in 66. Oh, man, you guys are sharpshooters. I'm thinking, <laughs> <laughs> you guys are man. You're a sharpshooter, man. He, he, he always maintained he was set up for that arrest. But what did it mean for a musician to come back from a bust in the mid-60s in, in Jamaica? Not easy. Not easy. You have to be very in tune and focused. And remember I told you, the greatest teacher is Mother Nature, and the teacher will be there when the students show up. This man turned it all into a positive, and the journey was not easy, because when you get busted for, for marijuana in Jamaica, you, it's a disgrace. Not supposed to happen. And you know what? It happened to some of the spiritualists of the Jamaica. Bob Marley, too. Peter Tosh. Look at the, look what's happening today with the plant. But that's another story. And also, there's a gentleman here whose name is Jojo Bennett. You heard of Jojo Bennett? Mm-hmm. He covered with while they were playing in Byron Lee and the Dragoneers. Toots wrote a song that's called "Why You Treat Me So Bad." And come on. Mm-hmm, tell me, baby. You don't know. Whoa, whoa. It's called Why You Treat Me Bad. Treat Me So Bad. So Jojo Bennett and Ken Lazarus with Byron Lee covered the song. It's called Soul's Care. That's why you want to check and listen what they did with Jojo Bennett. Come on, Jojo. Come blow your heart. But what I'm saying, Toots wrote that song. I... Why I'm Treated It So Bad, and then they covered it. It's called Soul's Care. These are the things that this man did so much with the Matos. You can't leave out the two guys that sang with him, Riley and Jerry, and it goes on to Willie Nelson all these cats, man. It's an amazing achievement coming it, out of Jamaica those days. It's it's so nice to hear you sing there. And I want to talk about Toots as a singer just for a second. Take a listen to this. This is Reggae Got Soul. Reggae Got Soul. That is Toots Hibbert with Reggae Got Soul. I'm joined by the Canadian reggae legend Jay Douglas to pay tribute to Toots Hibbert, the reggae legend who passed away on Friday. So, I mean, as a singer yourself, and we just got to hear you sing a little bit, which is lovely. What, what do you admire, Toots? Uh, what do you admire about him as a vocalist? Uh, he said, reggae got soul. Blues got soul. Jazz got soul. They all got soul. And what? It's... The soul seeks to give, bro, and giving is receiving. It's as simple as that. They taught me that. When I was in the Cougars with Pablo Paul and Nar- Nicky Norris, all these guys, they told me, especially when they took me in Montreal, you better, you better sing with some soul. Soul. Sing from the soul. And when you sing from the soul, you're on another journey. Is that- and he... Until this day, that's Mr. Soul. 
Is that what gave him, like, because he was famous all over the world, huge audience around the world. He was touring and recording right up until what would be the end of his life. You know, what was it, what was it that made him so famous and, and important all around the world? It, he had an, an, an energy. He grabs you. You want to be around him. He's like magnet. Never a dull moment. Work. It's always singing. No, nothing phony about it because it, it came from the spirit, the soul. Soul, man, when you come up through the foundation of the revival, you know, and that, don't forget now the soul, the blues has got soul. B.B. King Island Cats, we can't leave, cut them short. And the influence of the music from the great country of the United States, look what's happening today. This is what, because, you know, the big, the big, big United States of America had the influence all over the world. Mm -hmm. But most of all, we got the influence from all these great artists, but we must not deny the spirit, because the spirit is life, brother. Mm. Life, soul, energy. I'm feeling your spirit right now, mister. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, feeling, I'm feeling yours, Jay. I'm feeling yours right now, man. I really am. Energy, I, energy. I, I, you wake up. Reggae got soul. It's the truth. I, I love I love hearing you. I love talking to you about this. I want to say, I want to ask one thing before we say goodbye. So, there's one message you think people should take away from the life, from the music of Toots Hibbert. What do you think it should be? What can we all learn from Toots? We all can learn that be awake, wake up and live, wake up and live. We're all spiritually connected. It's not by coincidence that I got to hoping for this man. Now I appreciate it. Like I said, thanks to Jones and Jones, because they called me. Mm -hmm. I didn't. You're going to open for this man. Out of the blue. And it came at a time when I needed. We are all spiritually connected. Mm. Let there be peace and let it begin with me first. And that's the message. Listen to it. And you know what? The beauty about it, he, he was non-political, but it was the truth. And it might have offended some. But truth is truth, my brother. It's an awakening. It's an awakening right now. It's a, it's a, it's like going to church talking to you this morning, Jay. And and, and thanks for. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to sound like a preacher, man. But not at all. No, but no, 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 no. You know, I, I don't know. The first interview we had on the show, we talked a little bit about the spirit, and we talked about you know the soul, and it's just nice to talk to you about it too. And I love talking to you. Thanks so much for making the time for us today. Love talking to you too. God bless you. And love each and everyone out there. Let love begins with me. Do, do me a favor, Jay. We're going to play a Pressure Drop. Can you set it up? Can you say like, hey, this is Toots in the Maytals with Pressure Drop or something like that? Hey, this is Toots in the Maytals coming to you with Pressure Drop because Pressure Drop will pressure you. So this is what it all, it's all about. Let the pressure comes on from me to you and from Toots to all of us. Get ready. Here it is. Pressure job, pressure job. <laughs> Touch of the Beatles. Oh, yeah. I pressure job.
That is Toots and the Maytals with Pressure Drop. Toots Hibbert, the leader of that group and the international reggae legend, died on Friday. He was 77. And thank you to Jay Douglas, Canadian reggae legend, for joining us to talk a little bit about Toots' legacy. If you want to learn more about uh, Jay, we had him in for an interview about his incredible life in reggae. So you can find that on our Twitter page, twitter.com slash Q. We played him some really cool music and we had a grand chat with him. My name is Tom Power. I don't know if you can hear any of that. Yes, it sounds like shots. Uh, they launched, uh, oh, I don't know, about uh, half a dozen or a dozen canisters of tear gas or smoke. Are those shots, Ivan? Hello? The chaos you're hearing there is from a historic event that happened here in Canada known as the Oka Crisis. 30 years ago, there was an armed standoff in Quebec that lasted months between Mohawk protesters and Quebec police, the RCMP, the Canadian Army. There were barricades, army tanks, tear gas, a police officer got killed. The 78-day standoff started because of a golf course. The town of Oka, Quebec, wanted to expand their golf course from nine holes to 18. They also wanted to build a new condo. Both of these things would have encroached on Mohawk territory, this area with acres of trees, and a, and a burial ground. Two Mohawk reserves were at the forefront of the standoff, uh, Ganesatage and uh, Gunuage. They faced racist taunts, physical intimidation, and abuse from Oka residents. Import trucks wouldn't bring food to their communities. And now there's a new film that puts you in it, that puts you in the middle of this crisis from the perspective of a 12-year-old Mohawk girl. Tracy Deer directed the film, but she also lived the story herself. Her film, Beans, premiered yesterday at the Toronto International Film Festival, and it is my great joy to uh, re-welcome Tracy Deer back to Q. How are you doing? I'm really, really good. I'm really excited to be here. It's, um, it's an incredible time. I mean, this film has, one, been 30 years in the making since I lived it, but, but also it's been about a 10-year process to finally be here and, and presenting it to the world. So it's surreal. It's exciting. Um, I, it's so many different things. <laughs> yeah. It's surreal. It's exciting. It's exhausting. It's, it's all those things. It's also terrifying. It's terrifying as well. It's terrifying. Yeah. You know, uh, how will it be received? How will, you know, we, we all, all of us, uh, we all, we have great hopes for the film and the kind of impact it can have. And so will it have that impact um, I, I want to play my part in making the world a better place. That's the big goal. And it's very idealistic, I know, but, you know, will the film, can the film do that? Uh, and now we're at the phase where we're going to find out. So that's the terrifying part as I guess, an artist. I guess it's terrifying too, because it's so, it's so personal. So totally. as much as you want to say here, but like how, how personal or, or autobiographical, like how much of you is in this? So the emotional arc that the character goes on, the journey of self-discovery, um, that is definitely pulled from my own journey. But my journey did stretch from 12 into my early 20s um, until I, I was at a place to really own who I am. Um, and, and for the film, I did condense it into this summer for this young character. And there are very specific scenes in the film as well that are ripped directly from my memory, but I didn't, I wasn't at all of those landmark uh, Oka events. Mm. So I placed my fictional character there in order to move the story along. But the big one would have been um, when all of the cars 
left the community and we were pelted by angry Quebecers with stones. That one, that one was directly from the way I lived it. And mm. I, I really wanted people to experience it the way, the way I did. And so I, it's, it's shot that way as well. Yeah. And I, I, we'll talk about this in a second, just a little bit about the impact of reliving something like that. But, but, um, I heard back then you knew even then you wanted to tell the story. Like even then you were kind of like, I'm one of these days I'm going to make a film about this. Yeah. So I was 12 years old when I decided I wanted to be a filmmaker and I had just lived through the Oka crisis. And yep, even, even back then I, I thought this, this needs to be a film and it needs to be a film told through a child's point of view, because the way I lived it is so different than the way adult uh, Mohawk adults lived it, but also the way Canadians lived it. Um, I didn't know everything going on. I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't being told. I mean, the information wasn't, and as it, I, and I don't know that it should have been, you know, I, it's not a, it's not a big criticism to the adults to not be explaining everything to us. I'm sure they thought they were protecting us and shielding us. And yet we were exposed to all of this and it did have such a massive impact on me. Um, so I wanted to tell it from, from the point of view of a child and, and the devastating effects these types of um, this type of racism, this type of violence can have on a on a child. You know, the the, the Oka crisis is the subject of Ganesatage, the uh, 250 years of resistance. Alanis Obamsawin, like legendary documentary, incredible documentary. It must have been an experience making this film, or, or even just watching it and going like, "Yeah, there's that's me. There's there's my there's my family. There's that's something I, I I went through." Tell me a little bit about the impact that film might have had on you in making this film. So I only saw that film, I was in my early 20s and I was in university and I was in a class and that's where I saw it. And I was ripped to shreds. It was really, the Oka crisis was something I compartmentalized and tucked away as a survival mechanism to get through my adolescence. And I barely did, you know, I did go through a very dark period of depression. I was suicidal. So all of that was really tucked down deep. And then I saw Alanis's film um, in the middle of, of, you know, I was at Dartmouth College uh, and this film just came at me and ripped open that compartment. And I mean, I, I, once, once rocks at Whiskey Trench, which is what it has been termed, showed up on the screen, um, I ended up having to sort of leave the classroom and broke down in sobs in the hallway and the teacher came out confused what was going on. Um, so it, it had a profound, profound impact on me. And also that Elanisa Bumsuin is who she is and was there and made sure that our side of the story was told in that way uh, was just so inspiring to me. And, and, and not only that, in, your, in this film, it is um, a dramatic film. You know, it has actors playing these parts, but you also use actual a lot of actual news footage from 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 the day um which is illuminating in a lot of ways you know one is to see how the media portrayed it at the time you know um uh, another way is to be a reminder to those who perhaps didn't live through this that this did actually happen tell me a, a little bit about using so much real footage in this film well it's exactly what you've just said uh there was multiple reasons to do it one for the longest time in the writing phase of this script we were really concerned with how do we tell the Oka crisis story? There's so much that happened, you know, every day, some different things were happening and, 
the script writing phase took around eight years. And for years, we were balancing all these details. And, and ultimately, the big realize, the big aha came when I realized as a 12-year-old, I had no idea all this stuff was happening. So if we wanted to be true to that story, then we needed to be more, our little girl needed to be more removed. However, for the audience to understand what was going on, they needed some context. For them to understand her journey, they needed that context. So those documentary moments, uh, those four pillars that we have in the film, they came into the script years ago uh, in order to give that context. And exactly as you said, for people to know that this really happened, my biggest fear was that if any, if, if I didn't have them and people watched the film, which I think is a completely normal reaction when you get uncomfortable with your feelings to say, well, I'm sure that didn't happen. Mm. Don't worry, honey. I'm sure, I'm sure they're they're exaggerating mm. for for the story. And I did not want that to happen. That would have been um that would have that would have hurt all over again if that is what people were saying. So that is also my hope is that with these documentary moments, um, it's very clear that this happened and you cannot dismiss uh, the dramatic fictional moments of the film. Tracy, because you're telling, I mean, so let's let's talk about what you said at the very beginning. You said this was so incredibly hard uh, to even retell the story. And when you watched Alan Nisobamsawin's film, you walked out. I mean, you were so incre- so impacted by it. So this is a challenging film to shoot, right, for a bunch of reasons. You know, it, it, again, it's so real. It actually happened, especially for so many indigenous people across the country, but particularly Mohawk on that territory who went through the Oka crisis. How do you go about shooting this film in a sensitive way without re-traumatizing the people who are in it, the the land that you're on? I mean, talk talk me through how you did that. Yes, that was my biggest concern. And uh, you do it very, very carefully and very strategically. So I really hope we were successful. Um, so for, for a lot of the, the very ugly scenes, we did not shoot them in or directly around Ganawage. I did not want to rip the scab off of a wound that my own community and our neighboring communities have worked really hard over the last 30 years to repair. Mm. So I didn't want to inadvertently expose anyone to those terrible memories. So we ended up going a good 45 minutes outside of Ganawage to shoot the really, really ugly scenes. And those neighboring communities were very happy to have us. They knew what we were coming to shoot and they wanted to be a part of a, of a film that had the potential for reconciliation. So we had fabulous partners with these communities further out. Um, on our really tough days, we had social, we had some indigenous social workers on site to talk with anyone who was having issues. We had a PTSD specialist as well not only for my main actors, myself included, and all of our Mohawk extras, but also for our non-Indigenous extras who had to go to such an ugly place. Mm. Um, I wanted everybody to have the support they needed. We had an acting coach for all of the kids to help prepare them coming into the scene and also be there for them as they left the scene. Because I, as the director, I'm there for them as well. But I mean, I'm moving every every day. It's like scene after scene after scene. So Malie Hutton, uh, our acting coach, was there to help them emotionally prepare and help them emotionally de-escalate. We also had an intimacy coordinator, Lindsay Summers, mm-hmm. who helped with um, the more sexually charged scenes. Um, yeah, we we and I, I every day 
<clears throat> I love what I do. And for me, it has to be fun, as much fun as possible. Mm. And I really wanted that for the kids. So even though they were coming in to do these really difficult scenes, I wanted us to have fun every single day. And I worked really hard to, to make our set that kind of environment. Tracy, only tell me as much as you want to tell me here, but what about you? I mean, you, you told me that, you know, you, you had to, you know, you said it's not a strictly autobiographical film. You compressed a lot of stuff into this film, but you, you know, you were in the car and people were throwing stones at you as you were crossing the bridge and you had to shoot that scene. How, how was that for you? <clears throat> it was, um, it was terrible. <laughs> it was absolutely terrible. And uh, on the drive-in <laughs> to set that day, I thought, what were you thinking? What are you doing? Um, I thought I could definitely get like a masochist uh, title um, next to my name at that point. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, so it was, it was very scary driving into set. But as I got out of my car and had to go to base camp and check in with my actors, um, I did, I, you know, that the, the survival mechanism of compartmentalizing uh, is still active. And I was able to kind of tuck it away, tuck myself away a little bit, put on my director hat um, to be there for my, my actors and my crew and get the job done again with the bigger goal in mind. So if we could put this story out there, we could touch people, we can open hearts, open perspectives, and it's worth it to, to do this for that purpose. Um, I did have some difficult moments through the day. Yeah, of course. Um, when we were first shooting with the kids in the car and had to go down that um, at one point, there's so many things that have to happen, including the windows going up. You know, when we, it was a hot, hot summer day and all of our windows were down. And as we were getting off the bridge and my mom was realizing what was happening in front of us, she started yelling for us to get down and she started putting up the windows. So that's what this happens in the scene. And there's all these different cues as you're shooting. And I forgot to cue the windows. So we are now getting closer and closer to the crowd of angry protesters who are gonna throw rocks. Of course, they're not real rocks in, yeah. in the make-believe world shooting in. But it dawns on me that the windows are still down and I've missed a cue. So I yell cut, I apologize to everyone in the car. I missed the cue, I'm so sorry, let's reset. And I, and I say, stop the car. But the car wasn't stopping because we're being pulled by a rig. So not, I don't have a driver, I have a rig pulling the car. And there's a microphone in the car so they can hear everything I'm saying. And so I yell cut, stop the car, so sorry everyone. The car keeps moving. And meanwhile, my crowd of extras don't know that it's been cut. They don't know that there's been an error. So I did have my own sort of panic moment as the car continued to roll. Oh my. Towards this crowd. And I, I just kept, I started saying, stop the car, mm. stop the car. And the car wasn't stopping. Mm -hmm. And then I, I think I just had a, a bit of a, my own bit of PTSD moment. And I just really started yelling, stop the car, stop the car, stop the car. Right. Uh, and finally the car did stop. And um, I, yeah, every, and everyone in the car, my, our intimate car was looking at me and they were just like, Tracy, are you okay? And I, I had tears and I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm okay. Is everyone yeah. okay? I'm so sorry about that. Um, so, you know, there was moments like that where uh, it was hard. It was hard to um, keep it tucked away. Hardest day, hardest day of my life. Yes. I uh, well, second hardest day. The first hardest day was when I lived it. 
second hardest day was to recreate it. What a what a th- thank you for sharing that and and what an incredibly powerful film. I just want to play a clip from it mainly so we can catch ourselves here a little bit and 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 just take a listen to this. You want to go to juvie? Hmm? Instead of Queen Heights? She started it. I'm sorry. What? Do you understand what is at stake here? If they hate us, we suffer. Our people suffer. And tonight you made more people hate us. And rightfully so. You behaved just as badly as they did. She deserved it. They all do. Oh, don't you scream at me. That is not how I raised you. You are better than this. We are better than this. Pack your stuff so we can get the hell out of here before they change their minds and they lock you up. I'm not going to that stupid school either. That's Deka Handagwa, who also goes by the nickname Beans, having an argument with her mother. Tracy Deer is my guest, the Canadian director. Her film Beans made its debut at the Toronto International Film Festival yesterday. Uh, Deka Handagwa is played by the actor Gyawandio. She's incredible, but she's a kid. She's how, I mean, how old is she? And uh, she's, she's, she's a- now 14, so she would have been 13 at the time when we, when we filmed. And you um, tell this story not through the eyes of an adult, not through someone holding a gun, not through someone um, facing the lion. Like you, you tell it through a, a child. And it's also such a beautiful coming of age story, too, and a story about a kid trying to fit in, as we all did back then. But, you know, Beans is so integral to this story. Like her growth as a child is so integral to the story. I wonder what we learn about whether it's racism, colonialism, like the world. What we learn about it differently when we see it through the perspective of a kid, you know? I, I, hope, you, I hope you learn a lot more than just, um, as you said earlier, the headlines. Um, I, I really wanted to humanize the experience. It is racism, indifference, injustice. It is so destructive to, to a person's self-worth, to a person's self, uh, sense of safety, um, and I can attest to this personally, and I really think we need to do better. So I, I, I chose to, to tell the story through a child, really hoping to inspire people to go out into the world within the power that they hold, and we all hold power, to do better, to make the world a better place for our Indigenous kids. Because it, 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 they need hope, they need their dreams, and all of that gets chipped away by the society that we live in today. I said this to you at the beginning, is that I was born in, in 87, so I was born, um, the Yoko crisis I, was not something I saw on the news. It was something that I, I had to learn about later in life as a story. And your film kept it from being a story. Like, I felt every, every moment of it. You know, I felt, I felt every single moment of it. I felt every bit of humanity, as much as I possibly can, I guess. And um, I, I want to thank you so much for it. Thank you so much, Tom. I really, really appreciate that. It's, um, you're, we're going to go out on a song, and this is the song that you choose to end the film with. Can you please tell me about it? Yes. So the song is called Light at the End, and it's um, written and performed by our star, Gawadio. It's arranged and mixed by our composer, Mario Sevigny. And Gawadio, uh, at, towards the end of shooting, came to me to say she'd been working on a song that uh, inspired by the journey of her character, Beans, uh, Degahandakwa. 
and she wanted to play it for me. So three days, I think, before we wrapped, it was ready. Uh, she had performed it acoustically on her iPad, and she came to play it for me uh, during uh, during a break. And I mean, within the first verse, I had tears streaming down my face, uh, so moved, and I knew that this is the way to end the film. So uh, we paired her up with our composer and they, they did this incredible song together. Tracy, I, I was uh, on Twitter last night, which I try not to do too much, but I was on Twitter last night and I was saying, believe the tweets, believe the, believe the love you're getting right now. I hope people do. And I hope people watch this film as soon as they possibly can. Congratulations on it. Thank you. Can you do me a favor? Can you, can I make you into a radio DJ here? Can you throw to this song? Can you say like, here's you know, with the name of the song? Yes, absolutely. So everyone, please, uh, this is this is the first time you're going to hear it on the radio. This is Gawadio with Light at the End. Thanks, Tracy. I'm sorry I couldn't be more perfect. I wanted you to love me, but I guess I wasn't worth it. You told me what to do, like I was just a robot. Is that really what you thought? I said, do you think that I'm just a baby? Is that really all that you see? Don't tell me what to do. That's Gyawan Dio with Light at the End. Gyawan Dio is the lead in Tracy Deer's new film, Beans. And that song also ends the film. Beans just premiered yesterday at the Toronto International Film Festival. And again, I want to say that if you can, if you're wondering, I mean, I don't even know if I'm allowed to do this, but if you're wondering, you know, one of the TIFF films, oh, maybe I'll watch one of the Toronto International Film Festival films. And hey, I'm not in Toronto, but it doesn't matter because it's, a lot of it's being done digitally and you're looking for a film to watch. I can't recommend Beans enough. The Father with Anthony Hopkins is also fantastic. And I'll, I'll keep putting up stuff on, online. But that, yeah, that film Beans that Tracy made is absolutely devastating and, and spectacular and I'm grateful for her for, uh, for coming on that is it for the show today tomorrow on the show the legend Reba McIntyre see you then later on For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.